overall, the concern is that forests are not empty of people. In fact, hundreds of millions of people are connected to these tropical forests. Most of them are poor economically, often don't have very much political power. Many of them are indigenous people whose rights are not respected or protected by the states. And that when you introduce a kind of new commodity into that mix, it can actually exacerbate issues of land rights, of inequality, of violence even. So that is one of the concerns about creating offsets from tropical forests. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. The first time I visited the Amazonian state of Acre, Brazil, in 2012, I landed at the airport in the capital city of Rio Branco at night. Walking the tarmac in a sleepy daze, I strained to see the famed Amazon rainforest I had come to study. It appeared in outline, quiet darkness, against the small airport's dull illumination. I also strained to see it in the days that followed, as I wandered Rio Branco's dusty streets. Was I really in the Amazon, I wondered? Where was the rainforest of my imagination? Today on the SIDCast, my guest is Marin Greenleaf, and that is one of her reflections of uh, the very first time that she had visited the rainforest in Brazil and for research purposes. Marin is a really interesting person that I love to love to find and talk to and bring to everyone on the SIDCast because she studies climate change and studies it by being there in the rainforest and has a really interesting background. She's actually a sociocultural anthropologist, a political ecologist, and a legal scholar studying climate change, forests, and green economies. Marin is completing an ethnographic book manuscript on carbon offsets in the Brazilian Amazon, and she's starting new research on reforestation in post-industrial England. She's co-founded Dartmouth College's Energy Justice Clinic, in which she works with community partners and Dartmouth students to understand and support socially just transitions to renewable energy. Marin holds a PhD in anthropology from Stanford University, a JD from New York University, and a BA in political science from Yale University. And she's now an assistant professor at Dartmouth's Department of Anthropology. It's a long journey. And anyone wants to know, you know, how do you get to have this type of impact, do this type of research? She went to law school, as I mentioned, NYU for three years. She has an MA first from in anthropology at Stanford. That was two years, a PhD, another five years, postdoc number one at Columbia for one year, and then a postdoc number two at Dartmouth for three years, became an assistant professor, tenure track assistant professor, starting in 2021. Tremendous dedication and effort. Her work is very important. She talks about green capitalism. She talks about carbon offsets. She goes and goes to do the research in Brazil and elsewhere. And she's very, very dedicated to understanding how to reduce emissions and the role of global forests, in particular the rainforest in Brazil and the Amazon in that whole process. I don't think it's news to anyone. Well, there's an asterisk next to it because I'm sure there's still some troglodytes out there. But I don't think it's news to just about anyone that climate change is very serious. 
is devastating. And we're seeing it around the world with fires, with hurricanes, with dramatic weather change, with some of the hottest years ever recorded, certainly in North America and probably in lots of other places as well. So, you know, if there's any hope, it's that we have a lot of young people, a lot of students who are looking at my generation, baby boomers, and saying, okay, you guys built something, but you also caused a lot of damage along the way. We need to work on it. But also people like Marin Greenleaf, who's built the professional profile and the deep skill set to be able to do something about it. So we have a wide ranging discussion, as is always the case on the SIDCast. I know you're going to enjoy this. I know you're going to learn a lot about Marin and about climate change as well. Marin Greenleaf on the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid, Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Marin Greenleaf. Hi, Marin. Hi, Sid. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. We're both in our respective offices at Dartmouth right now. How long have you been at Dartmouth, Marin? I am finishing my fourth year here at Dartmouth. So your pathway is kind of interesting. And a lot of people, they don't understand. I mean, how could they understand what it takes to become a professor? And I was looking at your path, just starting with, you know, university, graduating from Yale with your undergraduate degree in 2003, and then not long after NYU Law School. And I'm going to have to ask you why you didn't get some high-powered law law (laughs) job in New York City where you'd be buying and selling all of us by now. <laughs> but then you go to Stanford and you get an MA in anthropology, a PhD, a postdoc at Columbia, a postdoc at Dartmouth, and assistant professor at Dartmouth starting in 2021, which by my count is 18 years from graduating with an undergraduate. And that's incredible dedication. So I guess I'm going <laughs> to start by asking, did you think it would be this type of path to get to where you are right now? And of course, you're not done yet. You're really early years as a professor. But nonetheless, did you ever think about that path and how long it would be in what would be involved? When I graduated from college in 2003, I wanted some time away from academics. Since I had spent my whole life in school, I wanted some time not being in school and didn't really know what would come after that. But I knew I wanted some space. So I moved to Boulder, Colorado, where I was originally born and did a lot of Buddhist meditation practice and got involved in environmental journalism and tried to recover from a life in academics, but eventually decided I wanted to do more. And I think a lot of people who didn't know exactly what they wanted to do decided to go to law school, not really knowing what practicing law might actually be like. So when I went to law school, I discovered I really liked studying the law. I thought it was fascinating. It was like a deep dive into kind of how the United States worked. But I realized through various summer internships and that sort of thing that I didn't actually want to practice law. And so I still loved being a student and wanted to keep studying what I had started studying in law school and so kept going in a PhD program. That's a characteristic I find for a lot of people in an academic career. They love school. (laughs) Of course, you better love school because that's where you live, where you are now, and that's how you're spending your career. At NYU, this was after a few years. So I have the impression most people that go to law school go pretty quickly after undergraduate. Was that the case for you? Like, were you one of the, it's funny to say older, because you wouldn't have been more than mid to late 20s at that point. Probably was one of the kind of on the older side of things. The folks I tended to hang out with that gravitate towards were around my age and had gone and done something else after undergrad. But there were certainly a younger set who would come straight through or basically straight through. What was it that attracted you to, you know, in Colorado, Buddhist meditation? Is this like a serious practice? It was a serious practice. I was born into a American Buddhist family. So it was a serious practice, the one that I had grown up in. So both family tradition and a personal interest. I guess Boulder is a very liberal town, but it's also a place where, you know, you look outside and it's pretty unbelievable what it looks like, what it feels like. 
Hanover is a mini, very mini version of that. And other than the mountains, it's quite similar in many ways, just a smaller version. And so is that really where this focus on sustainability came from? Just living and breathing there. And you said, this is something I really want to know more about and I want to be involved with. Yeah. When I was living in Boulder, I started working for this local magazine that focused, among other things, on environmental issues. And this was, you know, in the 2000s, mid-2000s. A fair number of people at the time started to reckon with the fact that climate change was going to be life-changing for all of us personally and world-changing. And there was also a lot of optimism at the time that market-based solutions would be the answer to climate change. I went to law school with the intention of studying carbon markets, studying how markets and law being very much part of markets, Mm -hmm. how they could address this looming crisis. Do you remember there was a time when we didn't use the term climate change, we used global warming. And we don't say that anymore. Climate change is certainly much more neutral. Global warming is pretty clear. Yeah. Do you know why that happened? (laughs) Because that's the public discourse. And I feel like that is like a big deal. It's hard to ignore global warming. Climate change, I mean, it should be hard to ignore that too, but it's a neutral term. And the words we use to describe things and the words that are true for law, but it's true for just everyday life are immensely important. Yeah, I don't know the full history. I believe there's kind of some discontent with the term global warming because it implies warming, right? That things are going to get warmer. And that's not actually the experience. It doesn't encapsulate the experience or effects of climate change in people's everyday lives. And so for all its faults, climate change, the emphasis there is maybe on change. And that is Mm. that is the defining feature. I know other folks who use climate crisis in response to that neutrality that you're identifying in the term climate change, that it doesn't really get to the urgency of the problem. None of the terms really are adequate, I think, for encapsulating what this phenomenon means for all of us. Did some of this interest also come up from your parents when you were growing up? Living in Boulder, again, that's a certain type of environment. But what impact or what did you learn, do you think, along the way, specifically around your focus on sustainability and climate change from your early years? It was not a major focus for my parents. I actually grew up in New York City. I was born in Colorado, but we relocated to New York City. But we spent summers up in Vermont, in northern Vermont, about an hour north of Hanover, where we are now. And that was where I formed a real connection with the natural world. I was an only child and spent a lot of time by myself in the woods in the summers. We had no TV in this log cabin we lived in. So it was really up to me to entertain myself. And being outside was the thing that I loved. And this was before there were any ticks um, (laughs) in this part of the world, or it was just not something we worried about. There was no sense of danger or harm or instability. Spending out some time outside, it was really a nurturing place. So it wasn't some things that my parents said to me particularly about the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're of a generation that they could rely on a functioning climate system on stable mm-hmm. ecologies. So they didn't emphasize it. But I think that interests came from my own experience by myself outside. So I have to ask you whether you found it lonely back in those days, because you were wandering the woods, you're by yourself, which is exciting and empowering, but also could be a little bit lonely. There was definitely some loneliness. Yeah, being an only child was no fun at times. And I had wonderful friends and cousins who came to visit and that sort of thing. But it was a lot of time outside, a lot of boredom. But one thing my parents taught me, I think this does come from the Buddhist tradition, that boredom is okay. It's okay to be bored and out of 
boredom comes a lot of creativity and self-sufficiency. So that's a skill I really appreciate having or perspective that I really appreciate having been taught. What was it like to grow up in a home that it's not so much practice Buddhism. There are probably billions of people that practice Buddhism in some form in America and probably in a place where not that many other kids at school, for example, were following Buddhist approaches. Well, yeah, what was that like? There were kids in school, but in the summers, I spent a lot of time at a Buddhist practitioners, including kids, and went to Buddhist camp and had friends in that community. I really loved it. And this isn't the case for everyone who's brought up in that community. But for me, it was very nurturing. And the kind of basic teaching was that everyone is basically good, that there's inherent desire to um, live a good life. And to be taught that about myself and about other people was very nurturing. And I really loved it, even if at times I felt isolated living in a country that dominated by theistic traditions. As we said. So, you know, you just said something really great, which is that everyone is okay and everyone should respect everyone. And it just sounds like such a foreign language in 2022, unfortunately, where we've gone the opposite way. Have you continued to have that belief or it's just in you kind of naturally? Or is it something that you practice or think about as a contrast or a vaccine against modern society? It's definitely something that resonates with me. A lot of people with you might disagree vehemently in this (laughs) country and elsewhere. And I think those fights are important. I engage in politics. I consider myself to be a quite political person, but I also try to recognize in those I disagree with a common humanity that their beliefs come from somewhere, from their experience, Mm -hmm. from their families, and that they also want to be happy in this world and are trying to make that happen in ways that I might disagree with. (laughs) Right. So... When you were in law school, did you realize that you really wanted to learn more and go deeper and get a PhD? Is that where kind of that click happened? Is anyone in your family also a professor or have a PhD? My dad is a mathematician and spent his years in a very different type of department. But yes, I grew up in kind of an academic family. And actually, my grandfather was not an academic, but he was a business. He worked at AT AT&T for a long time and he taught at Tuck for a couple summers, I think, actually. So I certainly felt comfortable in academia. When I was at law school, I started studying issues of carbon offsets and forests and became really interested in it, but also realized how little was actually known about what was happening on the ground in places where carbon offsets were being created or folks were trying to create them. And I wanted to do that research myself to find out what was actually happening. And anthropology which is what I decided to study, was something I had taken a lot of courses as an undergrad and was kind of a discipline that helped me really understand the world most effectively. Is it the case that people that study what you study around carbon offset, I mean, you can imagine economists, certainly not imagine, it's a fact that economists study carbon offsets in the carbon market, but anthropology as the core underlying discipline when I realized that, I thought, well, that's kind of cool and a little bit surprising. Am I mistaken? Is this like a big subtopic within anthropology? You are not mistaken. It is not a huge subtopic. In anthropology and our sister disciplines like geography, cultural, human geography, there is a real interest in how capitalism is created and the effects of its creation. My work is kind of situated within that broader interest in markets that does have a long history in anthropology since 
I'm teaching economic anthropology right now. And, you know, we start with this classic piece from Milanowski wrote in 1911 about the Turbrain Islands and exchange type of guest exchange that happens there. So looking at markets and looking at them differently than economists, that has a long history in anthropology. So let's get into your research a little bit more detail. Like any academic, there's probably a lot of different questions that you're asking, but is there one overarching question that kind of guides what you want to study, what you are studying and kind of your identity as a scholar? Well, I guess it depends on the day you ask me. So I'll just <laughs> respond from today's perspective. I'm interested in the intersection of the economy and the environment. In particular, I'm interested in how in efforts to make capitalist economies green and to make them not harm the environment, but protect and what that does socially, politically and culturally. Yeah, that's a giant question, isn't it? There's a lot of parts to it. I didn't actually connect the dots in my head earlier when I was thinking about our conversation. But now, based on what you just said, you know, this concept of ESG in business, environmental, social and governance, it's a big, big topic. I talk about in my class, several other courses talk about that. And there's pressure from some big investors. BlackRock is one of the most famous where the CEO, Larry Fink, has gone on record saying we can evaluate companies, at least in part, in how they're fulfilling environmental, social, and governance prerogatives. And I think the SEC is working on a set of metrics as well. It does permeate into a lot of different areas, but there's always some cynicism. I would say most of my students really want ESG to be part of their life. They believe in it, which wasn't the case certainly 20 years ago when nobody was really talking about it 20 years ago or hardly anyone. But they also look and say, well, this is a capitalist economy. Maximizing shareholder value is what it's all about. They wish it wasn't quite so one-sided. And they say, you know, I know there's a lot of talk, but somehow I got to figure out how to care about this at the same time as hitting my KPIs, my key performance indicators. How do you respond to that kind of reality that's out there? It's really interesting to hear from the business side of things and what future business leaders are struggling with. I share the concern. I think it's really interesting. And that's what I try to study on a kind of day-to-day level. What does it look like to try to change capitalist system that is premised on using resources, exploiting resources to their maximum, maximizing growth and maximizing shareholder value as we said. Can you try to, um, or can you successfully shift those goalposts? I don't think the answer is yes or no. I think it's constant work that is important, even if it falls short of its stated goals. I also am interested in and concerned about kind of unintended consequences. There's a long history in anthropology of looking at development projects around the world and the ways that they can both fail and also cause harm um, without intending to do so. So I think I think that those risks are there as well in efforts to green capitalism. That said, I think this is the economy we have right now, and this is the environmental crisis we're dealing with. I think the effort is important and will continue. You have folks like, you see the CEO, Larry Fink of BlackRock, making statements like that and prioritizing this. This is mainstream to capitalism now, and I think they just become more so. So it's important we understand it and try to make it as effective and equitable as possible. Is the situation very different in non-capitalist societies. So I think of the examples of the Nordic countries that are known historically for their social liberalism point of view. But then you also think about other giant China that while they call it a communist system is pretty 
darn capitalist in many ways. And then there's stuff in between. I don't know if you've studied that or seen that in any detail, but how is it different in other parts of the world? My focus has not been on those parts of the world you mentioned, but two thoughts that come to mind. One is if you look at a place like Norway, they get a lot of money from oil. Yes, they do. And so that is part of how they fund that welfare state. And it's also part of how they fund environmental initiatives around the world, including in Brazil, where I've worked. They're leaders in trying to combat tropical deforestation, for example. But that money is, I think, linked to this extractive fossil fuel economy. Mm -hmm. So there are no clean hands there, right? And China, obviously, huge contributor to climate change, number one emitter now, though, of course, not historically. And they can do things fast. The upshot of, I would say they're, you know, as you said, they're capitalists in many ways, but they are the upshot of having an authoritarian government as they can shift things uh, in a way that we don't seem to be able to through democratic means. And I think there is more of a prioritization of addressing climate change there. Um, at the same time, there's greenhouse gas pollution continues in many ways. There was an argument for a long time that we heard from China and other developing countries, especially China being the most powerful of them, which is we are now just developing. And why are you imposing the rules on us when you ran roughshod for 200 years, now longer since the Industrial Revolution? And it's a pretty strong argument. On the other hand, we can't go back. We can't fix what's already happening. So that's kind of interesting. The other thing about Norway, when you were describing that they generate an incredible amount of revenue from fossil fuels, from oil and gas, and they use some of that for, let's say, good purposes, that's a form of a carbon offset logic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's a national version of it, which is kind of interesting. And the other thing I was thinking of is there's a term in psychology called moral license. I'm not sure if I have it exactly right. I'm pretty sure moral license. It's the idea that when you do something good, it gives you the moral license to do something bad. And that argument was invoked for all sorts of things. Like, for example, people in this country that voted for, or at least didn't protest in the streets when Barack Obama became president, the first black American to become a president and then engage in some racist or other terrible behaviors. It sounds completely crazy. You would think there'd be a lot more consistency there, but that concept predates Obama. It's been around for a long time and I think I'm talking about organizations. My understanding of carbon offset is the reverse of that. I mean, you're doing something bad <laughs> in that you're polluting, but then you're doing something good to offset it. That's what the right. offset is. Moral license is you do the good thing, and then psychologically feel like you have the license or permission to do the bad thing. What do you think about all that? Yeah, the sequencing there is different slightly, but I think it's kind of more continuous, right? If you buy some offsets, let's say you purchase an airline ticket to fly somewhere and then buy some offsets to cover that, you might feel better about flying. You might feel like, okay, this is uncovered, right? I've covered my bases. Mm -hmm. And one of the critiques of offsets is Catholic practice in the past where you could pay to cover your sins, right? If you made a donation to the church or something like that, that that would absolve you of your sins. That's certainly a critique of offsetting with that. Yeah. That's actually really interesting. And again, reinforces my emerging hypothesis that this is pretty fundamental to humanity how people mm -hmm. somehow, how we're wired. Let's do a little kind of one-on-one work on this. What exactly is a carbon offset? A carbon offset is either a reduction or removal of greenhouse gas emissions that it can be bought and sold. And there are two basic kinds of carbon markets in which offsets can be bought and sold. So one is compliance markets or cap and trade markets. And these are adopted into law in the jurisdictions. And the program says basically, okay, we have a cap on the amount of 
greenhouse gas emissions that are permissible and certain entities like let's say pallet plants or other kind of major polluters that you have to have permits in order to emit greenhouse gas emissions and those permits are issued up to kind of the cap and then over time government can ramp that cap down to the desired or permissible level of pollution so the idea is that within that system there's a market in which the permits can be traded between regulated entities. And this creates an incentive to reduce pollution as much as possible. You have this new valuable thing that could be traded, these permits. So offsets are created outside of the cap by entities that are not required to reduce their emissions. Certain cap and trade systems will allow offsets in so that they're polluters can buy offsets to cover usually a kind of percentage of their emissions that can be covered by offsets. And the idea there is to reduce the cost of reducing emissions because offsets are often cheaper. It's cheaper to reduce emissions outside of the cap than inside often. So that's how offsets function within a cap and trade system. But then there are also offsets in what's called the voluntary market. There, there's no legal requirement for companies or individuals to buy them, but companies or individuals might want to for reputational purposes, for um, ethical commitments. So here we can think of companies, carbon neutrality commitments. Sometimes that are becoming increasingly popular from what I understand. So one way for a company to reduce or eliminate their emissions is through actually polluting less, but another way is through buying offsets so that other people pollute less. And so you buy the offset, and so you're paying for the right to keep polluting, at least at a certain level. Who's selling the offsets that's getting the money? That is a great question, both who's selling it and who's getting the money. And that's part of what I was trying to understand in looking at efforts to reduce deforestation in a part of the Amazon. Who gets the money? So there's different versions of this. You know, there are businesses that have started to create carbon offsets. There are NGOs that are involved. There are also governments that create them. So there's a lot of variation. And then there's a question of, you know, what happens if the government sells an offset? What happens to the money then? Who gets the money within once the sale is made? Can I create an offset, carbon offset? Well, I don't know. What are you going to do to... That's what I want to know. What would I have to do? And is there some regulator that says there are five criteria and you've hit them so you can now sell offset? Is that what happens? It depends. So for a cap and trade system, like California has a prominent cap and trade system, there is a regulator that says what kind of offsets are allowable into the California market and sets criteria that have to be met in order for an offset to be sold there. So both the type and then within that type, you have to do these five things, for example. What's an example or two of an offset? either in California or in Brazil, where you've done a lot of your own research? So my focus has been on forest receptor and something called RED+, plus, which stands for Reducing Emissions in Deforestation and Forest Degradation. So here it's kind of a counterfactual. Let's say you own some land and you have a forest on it. Your plan had been to cut down that forest in order to plant some quarry, for example. Then you say, wait a minute, maybe I can leave my tree standing and get some money for doing it. So the offset right there you have, remember I said before, that you can either have removals or reductions in emissions. 
So here you have a reduction in emissions. You aren't doing something you had planned to do. And as a result, there are less emissions going into the air. The plan to do part is kind of tricky, of course. It is very tricky. That's just kind of make-believe if you want it to be make-believe. But if you have land, let's say forest land, this could be anywhere in the world. You could sell offsets on the premise of leaving that land the way it is. Is that accurate? You would have to get it certified in certain ways. And California has restrictions on where the offsets can come from. For example, different rules for domestic versus international. So there are definitely restrictions, but you could certainly look into it. There's certainly a possibility there. Like if I owned 100,000 acres in northern New Hampshire, I could sell offsets under the premise of leaving it alone, not doing anything to that land. Mm-hmm. If you had planned to cut it down, and how do you prove that? So that's a question. And in areas like where we live, the issue often is that people don't own 100,000 acres. Mm-hmm. They own much smaller tracts. And it's harder to do at smaller scale because the costs of getting certified are high. So there's some effort, and I don't know the details of this, but I think in Vermont, there's some effort to, to kind of pool private landowners in some way. All of them own smaller parcels of land, but if you can bring them together in some way, maybe a company does that, for example, then you have a chance of creating enough offsets that it would be worth it. The problem with all that, as you well know, is that I have no intention of doing anything with that 100,000 acres, and I never did. (laughs) And now I'm going to make some money off of that. But worse than that, I suppose, if you want to say that, is that now a big polluter could say that they have taken care of a problem that never existed before. Yes. That's almost like, I don't want to call it a fatal flaw because it does work in certain places, but it seems like a really serious problem in this whole model. It is an issue. It's called, the term that's often used is additionality. So are your reductions in emissions, are they additional to what would have happened without the offset payment? How do we really know? And so that is something that folks who work on this have struggled over and come up with ways to kind of address. But there are critics who find all the answers unsatisfying. There's other issues around permanence. Um, and leakage is another issue where, okay, well, let's say you don't deforest on your 100,000 acres in northern Hampshire, but you also own 100,000 acres in Maine and you deforest there instead. That's sometimes called leakage and is another concern. There's a lot of issues legitimate issues, many we haven't even discussed yet around the effects on people who live in forested areas. But the overall premise that I think is very compelling is that right now, traditionally, the way that we have valued forested land is the only way you kind of make money off it is by clearing it, unless you have a maple sugaring operation or something like that. But the usual way is through logging, through clearing the land for agriculture or infrastructure development, and that that doesn't recognize the other type of role that forests play, multiple roles, among them the climatic role in stabilizing our climate. And so I think it's important to recognize that underlying motivation is to give monetary value to ecological value and a social value as well. It's a good reminder as I keep nitpicking on an idea that I just am learning about in real time. I want to just ask real quick, because you mentioned permanence, it occurred to me as well. How long are these offsets typically? Is there a standard? Again, there's a real range for how long forests would have to be kept standing. So decades, for example, depends on the system you're looking at. Right. And, you know, given where we're at, decades is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Asking forever, well, there might not be a forever. So I'll take decades. So I'm okay with that. Let's talk specifically about some of your work in Brazil. And you mentioned also 
the effect or the impact on the people living on the land. What's the issue there that you have seen and studied? So there's multiple concerns, but overall, the concern is that forests are not empty of people, even though they're often imagined to be. In fact, hundreds of millions of people are connected to these tropical forests around the world. Most of them are poor economically, often don't have very much political power. Many of them are indigenous people whose rights are not respected or protected by the state's that they are part of, and that when you introduce a kind of new commodity into that mix, it can actually exacerbate issues of land rights, of inequality, of violence even. So that is one of the concerns about creating offsets from tropical forests, for example. And there's been a lot of work to try to address those real issues, I think with varying success around the world. Where I have worked in the Brazilian Amazon is a place that was renowned for having an environmentalist government, and they created a state program to enable the government to create offsets and otherwise receive payments for emissions reduction. So offsets are just one way that a government or another entity could receive those kind of payments. The state has tried to create legal protections and a system of distribution that guards against some of these concerns that I've mentioned. What you said is that these are not just forests that go on forever. There are people in there, there are villages in there. I don't know what people think about the Amazon. I don't know what I think about it, but I would not have guessed that it's dotted with maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of villages with real people living a life, which is really interesting. But if that state or that region negotiates some type of offset and some of these people are working off of the land, what happens to them? Where I worked, I want to emphasize there's a tremendous variation around the world in these projects. But what I found in my research is that the government there created what I came to think of as green welfare state or environmentally premised welfare state where money earned and they actually never sold offsets, but they've received payments for emissions reductions. So money that doesn't allow compensate for a pollution elsewhere, but is they've received the reducing emissions in the past. That money was kind of redistributed by the state in a way that created uh, social welfare provisioning that didn't exist. You know, this is an area that didn't have a 20th century welfare state in the way that we might be familiar with in the U.S. or in Europe or even in other parts of Brazil. But this area did not have it. And so the value of the forest enabled forms of governmental redistribution that had their problems, but created new forms of political relations and new forms of citizenship practices for people who lived in and near the forest. So are these people that, I mean, they weren't living, let's say, an abundant life perhaps, but they lived their life and they were independent. And now they're being given grants from the state for not doing what they traditionally have done. Is that accurate? There is a real concern around these forest offset projects, there might be a kind of criminalization of traditional land use practices, which is what I think you're, you're talking about, right? Is that people who used to clear the forests as part of their livelihood strategies would not be allowed to do that anymore. What I found was a bit different than that. So this is an area where you know, most of the deforestation has been done by large cattle ranchers, large-scale cattle ranchers, not by smallholders. 
But that said, smallholders are increasingly integrated into this system of extensive cattle ranching, which requires a lot of land. It's like the opposite of factory farm feedlot. This is like expansive. You clear a lot of rainforest for not having cattle. So there are restrictions on that, but those restrictions are actually from the offsets. Those are part of different types of legislation in Brazil, the federal and state level. In the Amazon, you're supposed to have 80% of your land kept as forest. Can you imagine in the U.S. if the government told landowners they had to keep 80% of their land as forest? It's a very kind of ambitious policy. So those restrictions were there, the carrot stick approach, where there are fines issued when people deforest more than that. And Brazil was very successful at reducing deforestation, Amazonian deforestation in the 2000s in particular, so much so that it could claim with some credibility that they had done more than any other country on earth to combat climate change. But then the question is, okay, well, if you're limiting people's ability to deforest, which is kind of the traditional way of making an economy in the Amazon as in many other places, including in the U.S., massive deforestation. If you're limiting people's ability to deforest, then what's the alternative? What does low-carbon rural economy look like? The payments for reductions in emissions as part of the Amazon that I worked in went to fund efforts to create that kind of economy. So efforts to create fish farming, for example, building fish ponds and growing and selling fish. Practicing more intensive cattle ranching, encouraging rubber tapping, which is a traditional form of non-timber forest product there. So subsidizing rubber production, increasing acai berry collection. So a whole host of types of production that don't entail deforestation. So the new kind of monetary value of carbon helps to court or to try to support that kind of economy. Are those efforts working for the most part? In some ways they are, but it's up against massive real financial value mm-hmm. of the dominant economy there, which is, as I said, premised on deforestation, clearing for cattle and also for soybeans. When you have support for two different types of economies that are really in conflict with each other, mm-hmm. there's a lot more money going into the clearing company than there is for the low-carbon economy. So that's certainly been the case. Well, that's debatable. You know, folks I knew in the government, the state government, did a lot to reduce, keep deforestation under control for many years. And there were not quite promises, but it seemed like a lot of money was going to come to support us that we would be able to sell a lot of carbon offsets or get other types of payments for reducing emissions. And a lot of that money didn't arise. And so there's underfunding of these alternative types of economies in comparison with soy and cattle. Yeah, that's not a winning strategy. It's just not going to work. It requires a subsidy or something like that. If you're only going to make 70% of what you would have, then you want them to make 110%. So there's a real incentive. And that takes a lot of money to actually fund that. Takes a lot of money. Yeah. And where's that money come from so far? Is that the United Nations that's involved? Is it the U.S. do this? Norway. There's some Norwegian money. There's some German money, some U.K. money. And increasingly in the past few years, the voluntary carbon markets, there has been more money coming through that. So there's a lot of corporate interests around the world in offsets again. And so that money is increasingly 
coming through, though I don't know enough details about its effects right now. It's a tricky thing because let the other guy pay is a very natural mindset. It's like a prisoner's dilemma type of situation. Let them all pay. But in fact, everybody loses if nobody pays. Those types of game theory type scenarios, they don't usually end very well because of human nature. I'm curious about the actual people that you've met. What are they like? What do they say to you? What are they curious about? What do they think about all this? Well, I've worked with a wide variety of people, some in the state government, some in NGOs, some in working in businesses, and then also smallholder farmers. And those folks are mostly rural and having a lot of indigenous people. And there are definitely a lot of indigenous people who struggled and fought for their rights. But most Amazonians don't identify as indigenous, even if they have indigenous heritage. Most do not identify as indigenous. And most are urban. Where I worked in the Amazon, about 70% of people live in cities. But there are a lot of smallholder farmers of mixed heritage. And most of them in the part of the Amazon that I worked in are descendants of rubber tapplers. So this was an area, part of the Amazon that was colonized primarily because it had really high quality rubber trees. Back in the 1800s, late 1800s, was called the rubber boom. When automobiles start to get bought and sold in kind of global north spaces, primarily the, the rubber for those tires. A lot of it comes from the Amazon. And so Brazilians moved to the Amazon from elsewhere, from outside to tap rubber trees. Then the market for rubber collapses, basically because after the British stole some seeds from the rubber trees, Amazon and brought them over to Southeast Asian colonies where they could plant them in plantations and monocrop plantations that were a lot more efficient than this very spread out, dispersed rubber trees in the Amazon. So the price of rubber collapses and the economy in the Amazon collapses as a result. But a lot of people stay in the forest and keep tapping rubbers somewhat, engaging in subsistence agriculture, engaging in all kind of diverse livelihoods. Those are the folks that I got to know in rural areas that I worked in. And so their ancestors and many of them tapped rubber as when they were kids and spend a lot of time in the forest. And so they understand that the forest can be very valuable economically. So they don't really want to deforest, but that's the only way that they've been able to make money really is by clearing land. But they are open to not doing, but they say they, you know, we need support, we need help to make a living that doesn't entail deforestation. So are you, Marin, optimistic or pessimistic about the direction we're going? depends on the day. I am optimistic in that I know many people in Brazil and part of Brazil are working to create viable ways to live, viable and locally rooted, culturally rooted ways to live good lives in the Amazon. I know people who are working to support them around the world as well. But the dominant economy there, if you look at the president, Jair Bolsonaro, big supporter of Amazonian clearing, Hopefully will not be reelected this year, but he was elected four years ago. So there is a lot of support for clearing. On my second day in this part of the Amazon and back in 2012, I had lunch with this guy who said, you're coming from America where you cleared all your trees and now you're coming down here and telling us not to. Mm -hmm. I understand that sentiment. And I think, you know, when their folks are trying to make a better livelihood for themselves within an economic structure that values clearing, then it's hard to counteract. 
I want to end on a positive note. These are scary notions. <laughs> <laughs> you have a book that's out. That's not the most positive title. If I have the most up-to-date title, Forest Lost. But I imagine that it's a call for action as well, not just a description of what's going on. What is your goal with that book? Well, that book is an account of what I've been talking about. It's not optimistic in a lot of ways, but I think understanding the way that efforts to create green economies have worked so far, their limitations, but also their successes, creating environmentally premised forms of citizenship and governance. I think that can help inform the measures that are going to be taken in the future because these are going to continue. And so it's important to understand their strengths and limitations. But the next project I'm going to work on, I hope to have a little more optimism in it. So I'm looking at tree planting. Instead of efforts not to deforest, I'm looking at tree planting. And I'm hoping to do it in a part of England. It was the center of the Industrial Revolution, center of the beginnings of a lot of the problems that we've been talking about, right? And that has been cleared for hundreds of years and now is the site of a major reforestation effort. And I'm interested in understanding the politics of that, but also the effective dimension. So what happens when people plant trees that kind of the, the way that it's entangled with their own hopes for the future for themselves mm-hmm. and for mm-hmm. the earth. Yeah, that's actually a very good location to be for them to be doing that, let alone for you to be studying that. That's ground zero of sorts. Yeah, exactly. What part of England is that? The north of England, it's the belt, this very urbanized belt from Liverpool on the west coast to Hull also has Manchester and Leeds and other areas in it. And it's among the least forested parts of England, which is among the least forested parts of Europe. That'll be something to look for and the lessons that you learn out of that as well. By way of wrapping up, I'd like to ask a little advice question. And it's more of, let's say, advice to yourself. (laughs) If you could magically go back to when you were, say, 20 years old, so you're still in the midst of your undergraduate work. If you can magically go back and kind of lean over to the 20-year-old Marin and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know or think about or do or not do, what would that be? What would be that little bit of lesson to yourself at the age of 20? You know, I got interested in these environmental issues in the years afterwards, but I would have encouraged myself to look at them sooner because I think they are um, so crucial to what the life that I will lead, the life that my children will lead, and the life that you know, people who I don't know, without a kind of livable planet, everything else is impossible. And so working on these issues feels paramount. You know, I knew that on some level back then, but it is rather abstract. Yeah. I wonder whether if we were talking to people who are 20 years from now, people that are in school right now, if they would say something like you, I hope they wouldn't, because certainly you see so many younger people so much more focused and caring and understanding and upset about what has happened and what needs to happen. So let's hope that that question 20 years from now will get a very different answer amongst most people. I think so. My students are very committed, very smart and upset. They are a source of inspiration often. That is a positive note for us. There we go. (laughs) Maren Greenlee, thank you so much for being on the SIDCAST, sharing your story and your research and the struggles involved in trying to address what might be the single most important problem out there. So it's very important that we have people studying it and thinking about it, all sorts of different points of view. So thanks again for being on the SIDCAST. Thanks for having me, Sid. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season four. 
and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SITCAST is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.